thing is, there's got to be an obscure commandment somewhere buried in the Old Testament that says you can't have this much fun in church. I don't know. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, thank you to, to both Boris and Desiree. One of the great things about uh, preaching all weekend is that I get to hear them multiple times. You know, it's, it's great. Well, uh, last Christmas, and it's not Christmas yet, okay? I'm not, I'm not confused. But last Christmas, I was given a gift by my youngest son, Robert, um, that has turned out to be very useful for me. And that is right here, a Fitbit watch. You know, it's probably something that I never would have bought myself. I, I had a, uh, you know, an app on my cell phone. I try to use that. But what a Fitbit watch does, for those of you who don't know, it counts your steps, among other things, like checks your pulse and various things like that, to try to motivate you to exercise, to keep going. And, you know, if I'm sitting at my desk too long or something like that, it'll start vibrating there and I'll turn the thing on and say, oh man, you are a slug today. You know, or something along those lines. But there's one thing that I, I, I don't think that Jesus needed to be given. And that was a Fitbit watch. Because he walked everywhere. In fact, the reason why, uh, well, among many other very important reasons, of course, why you will not find a Fitbit watch listed among the gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus is because he already walked everywhere. He didn't need the motivation to do that. As a matter of fact, now, there was one day, for example, when, uh, I don't know that it took place in just one day, but he went on a 35-mile hike. 35-mile hike. I mean, if, if I went on a 35-mile hike, my Fitbit watch would be celebrating shooting off fireworks. If I did that, he went from Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, all the way up around to the north, you know, the extreme north part of Israel, which is Caesarea Philippi, a city that was up there. And uh, went up there with his disciples to go on a camping trip. My question is, why would they go up there for this camping trip? It was completely out of the way of any other place. It wasn't on the way to anywhere. It was in the opposite direction of Jerusalem. So why there? Well. For one thing, the area is a beautiful area. And a lot of times when we see these, uh, these movies that are supposed to take place in the Holy Land, we see this dry and dusty place. But the north of Israel is completely the opposite of that. It's very lush and green with flowing, fast-moving water. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really a very beautiful place. But it's even more than that reason why he would go there. Uh, he went up to this place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a city that was very new. It was only about 30 years old at the time that Jesus would have been there. It was founded by Philip the Tetrarch, who was a son of Herod the Great, and he founded you know, those two names of that, Caesarea Philippi, founded in honor of Caesar, uh, in, in honor of the emperor, and it was founded by Philip, so they called it Caesarea Philip, or Philip Philippi. But the place itself, where this was located, was a very, very old place with very established kinds of practices that were there, where people would sacrifice to their gods dating back to the days even of the Canaanites before, or really before the Hebrews crossed into the Promised Land. And there, not too far from Caesarea Philippi, the city, is this place where there's this cave with a gaping, wide opening, and inside of it a deep pool of water that was so deep they didn't it was seemingly bottomless. And they thought it was the gateway into the underworld. So they called it the Gates of Hades, or the Gates of Hades. And it's really a satanic evil place where they would have temples 
theirs to sacrifice to the gods, various different gods. Herod the Great constructed a temple there to honor Caesar, and uh, oftentimes during the time of the early church, various places would have temples constructed to emperor worship. And if a person was living in that place, they would be expected if they wanted to carry on their business, if they wanted to uh, avoid imprisonment, they were expected to go to the temple, if nothing else, not to the other temples, they would be expected to go to the temple that was to the emperor and practice emperor worship, which meant that for early Christians, it put them in a terrible spot that oftentimes led to the persecution. At the gates of Hades, they had that, but they also had, more significantly, right outside the entrance to the gates of Hades, they had a temple to the Greek god Pan. And Pan is, you know, this kind of weird-looking god. You've probably seen pictures of it at some point in time. That oftentimes really is uh, the prototype for the images that we have of Satan. He's got these horns, and he's half man, half goat. He's the god of the wild places. God of nymphs is considered to be the God of sex, the God of fertility. And much of what Pan stood for, that the sacrifice there, much of what Pan stood for stood in direct contrast with the values of both Jews and Christians alike. Sacrifices were made at Pan's temple at the mouth of that cave, and when they were done so, they would take whatever was sacrificed and they would throw it into the pool, the deep pool of water. And if the sacrifice, whatever that was, Exploded, it meant one thing, and if it sank, it meant another thing. It was an oracle to them to guide them in life. And they didn't just sacrifice animals at this temple. No, they sacrificed people there as well. They sacrificed human beings at the gates of Hades. So it was here, in this place, that Jesus chose to walk 35 miles out of his way with his disciples for a camping trip. Wow. Well, it's not exactly the place that you might expect Jesus to go for a little while and on. That had to be another reason. It was there, while gathered around the campfire, that Jesus asked an important question. A question that was one of the most momentous moments in history, significant moments in history. That night, gone to the campfire for its warmth and light, Jesus asked his disciples this question Who do people say? That I am. Now, why might that question be so important? Because depending upon what you think about Jesus, it will indicate where you will go with your life, what you will do, what, what you will say, how you will act, what your values might be. What you think about Jesus matters. There were those who said that Pan was a God worthy of worship, worthy of following, even worthy of sacrificing for it. And it would be the, this God of sex and God of isolation, which means that today we still see people sacrificing to these, these same kinds of things. Kind of the same way, of course. sacrifices to that. There are those who said that Caesar was a God. You know, Caesar, Caesar, Caesar was dead. And the son of Caesar then would be called a son of God. There's realms that worship that the whole economy and power structure of the Roman Empire existed. And... So the question wasn't just, who do people say that I am? But the implication was, who do people say that I am in comparison with these gods that are worshipped down here at the gates of Hades? These gods are worshipped in the world. 
Well, some say Elijah, one disciple answered, thinking of what the Jews might say about him. But the flickering of the firelight reflected off of his trembling face. Some say one of the prophets said amen. But now Jesus wanted to get personal. He wasn't going to let them off the hook. This is why he brought them here. Who do you say that I am? He asked. And for a moment, it was nothing. It's the sound of the fire. And Peter threw the stick that he had been playing with into the fire, looked up at Jesus, and said, You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one who is everything these pretenders outside the gates of Hades could never possibly be. The ones people are eager lining up down there to worship and to sacrifice to, they, they know nothing. And these are things that are empty, but you, you, the Son of the living God. This is important because the disciples very soon are going to find themselves in a position where they are demanded to worship these gods down here, to take a stand. And if Jesus is not everything that, that Peter says that he is, well then the church, this fledgling experiment that Jesus creates, doesn't stand an ice cube chance in hell. But if he is everything that Peter says that he is, well, then they are people who will make up this church that will be unstoppable. Well, this is the son of the Peter. Simon, which is his real name, is the pretty much Peter, which is the name of the name, which means rock. Simon, you are Peter, rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, where we heard that before, will not prevail against them. They will be unstoppable. These things down here, they have no power against God's people, against His church. The gates of Hades, where all those temples were lined up to worship false gods, this life-sucking, this lifeless, satanic place where the forces of this world are lined up in worship, none of that stood a chance against the church of Jesus Christ that focuses on Him. The one who is the Savior, the Son, and the living God. Which brings us to today. This is all things Sunday, the day when we celebrate the church. We celebrate those who've gone before us in the faith. And it's this day that is the reason for Halloween, which got its name from All Hallows Eve, meaning the Eve of this holy day of All Saints Day. And normally, All Saints Day doesn't line up on a Sunday. We'll still celebrate on a Sunday, but this year it does. We've got All Saints Day and uh, a Sunday lining up together. And with Halloween, you know, Halloween is understood over, uh, over time as being that day when, when people know that Satan's power is limited. His days are numbered. And that when he comes up against the power of God's church, of God's people who are focused on him with God's spirit, he doesn't stand a chance. Therefore, the evening before is the time when he lets it all loose. He's, he's got his last gasp, the last possible power. And that's what Halloween was created to, to observe. But it was really done to observe the power of the devil, the power of the church. 
Halloween, I think, is actually a, a metaphor for our time. And Satan knows that his days are numbered now, and his time is short. And he therefore is frantically active. But Satan knows that the thing that many of us have forgotten, and that is that he doesn't stand a chance against a group of real believers who gather together in Jesus' name. He doesn't stand, together, doesn't stand a chance against them. But these days, Halloween is widely celebrated. Widely celebrated, and, uh, and yet very few people in our culture outside of our select few believers and churches even know that all saints are really even exist. The church, by many, is considered to be pretty powerless while Satan runs wild. Which means that I think it's fair to ask, does the church matter anymore? What do you say? Does it matter to you? Your answer will indicate really finally what Jesus really means to you because the church is the body of Christ. It's His presence in this world. Is Jesus merely a nice idea, an opinion, a tradition, a nice thought? Or is Jesus someone worth standing for, worth worshiping, worth committing to, worth hanging out with? I don't think someday we remember these people who've gone before us. And we can we maybe think of some people who've gone before us who are people of the faith, who were people who influenced us in the faith. And left us a legacy. I, you know, you can look at people, a, a parent, a grandparent, uh, maybe a camp counselor, a Sunday school teacher, or a pastor. For me, fantastic. I go back to uh, Pastor Sunwall, who is an older white man who is a pastor of an almost all-black church that I grew up in, during, you know, this was back in the 1960s. I was very young, and Pastor Sunwall was pastor in there. It was very unusual because of the age. There's still an age when civil rights was very new and different. And yet here was this guy who was pastoring this almost all black church, except for, you know, a few blind-headed little kids like me. And then Pastor Nelson, who guided us faithfully in God's Word through those weird days of the 1970s. And Pastor Mike Morgan, who introduced me to the Holy Spirit and the power of God in a person's life. And these people made a huge difference. And I look at certain churches. This is the church that my mother's family uh, was part of, called First Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was truly, literally, the first Lutheran church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And kind of a neat place, historic building. But the one thing there that really stands out for me as being my favorite part of this building, favorite part of this place, is something that would be very unusual. As a matter of fact, I might even think of someday, hey, we better correct that. But it's this. There's a concrete step right outside the side door that goes out to the street where over the years people have stepped going in and out of church so many times and so many people that it, it wore the concrete down so it's concrete. So you can step on the concrete step and literally step in the step of those who've gone before us in the place. Like, oh, man, that's cool. That's really neat. I love going into churches with history where you've got a pulpit up front. I, I'm drawn to that. I want to go behind the pulpit and stand there where preachers have preached to the faithful in the past. I kind of like that place to be there with those people. All of these things, as the book of Hebrews says, like a great cloud of witnesses 
demonstrating that the church matters because it goes beyond their four walls, beyond this place, and down into time, into the lives of the people who stood for Jesus during some challenging times of their own, providing us with an example to follow a legacy of faith. So many people gather together that, as Peter described, it's like a blur. Lord, like a cloud with us, giving us their faith and legacy to follow. So Halloween and all things say aren't the only thing that are in people's minds this week. We have all kinds of things going on in our world today. We've got division, we've got, we've got violence out there, and right now the most pressing thing for a lot of people is the election that's coming up this week. And for good reason, that's pressing in their minds. If our country continues to head in that direction that many would like it to go. The church will be in for some really tough times in the future. Which means that the legacy of faith that these people have passed on to us, these people who have you know, stood for the Lord over time, have passed on to us, that is in jeopardy, as is our country itself. Because as those people move, the truth of this statement that comes from Scripture, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And yet the flip side of that is what we have been witnessing in our time. That when a nation throws off God's hand, then what we have is violence and division and chaos. All these things make it for, make for a very interesting and a troubled and stressful time. Sometimes it doesn't really get to me. It really does. The other night I couldn't sleep because of the stress of it all. Not the necessary direction of the world, but really carrying to the church during some time and time. Having a pastor's heart, and I do have a pastor's heart, means that sometimes, I gotta tell you, I care too much. But that's possible, I care too much. Which leads to a whole lot of stress and sleepless nights. So, since I couldn't sleep anyway, I got up, took a shower, came into work. It was still dark. And uh, as I was driving down the road, my headlights fell on the back of the car in front of me. And there on the back of the car in front of me, it had just two words that were reflected that the owner of the car had added to the back of that car. It said, I'm Jesus. I said, I'm Jesus. It's funny, I can do sentence. <laughs> I think it's cool, it's great. You don't see the name Jesus on the back of anybody's car very much anymore. Certainly that's great, but what in the world does this mean? I'm Jesus. And I realized, wait a minute, there's a a word that's above it there that's not reflecting, and it's the name of the car. So I drove a little bit closer so my headlights could shine on that, and you know what the name of the car was? It was a Ford Focus. So it said, Focus on Jesus. And I just smiled. And I said, Thank you, Lord. <laughs> exactly what I needed. So in the midst of all of this kind of stuff, I need to. Focus on Jesus. Just like the passage from Hebrews says, right after it talks about the great cloud of witnesses, it says these words. It says, Therefore, because of this, because we have that great cloud of witnesses, all these people who stood in the place before us and had to pass on that legacy to us, because of that, therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes. On Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. 
Now, maybe this week, my head might be challenging what time to do. But let me give you two things that you can do to help you to focus on Jesus. First, it's this. Remember that no candidate is the Savior. We serve the Savior. We follow the Savior. He is the one that Peter confessed. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one who is the Savior. Focus on Him. And second, regardless of what happens in the future, this week and beyond, regardless of what happens in the future, here's the thing that is sure, is that we will be stronger together than we will be apart. And that's why Satan wants to separate us, and he's done his level best to do so. No, the church really does matter, because this is Jesus' church. When we focus on him, his church cannot 